As many of you know, uh, this morning is the beginning of a new series after the end of a year and a half in the book of Acts. Some of you are rejoicing. I think Tony is. He asked me how many years we're going to be in Daniel. <laughs> hey, Acts is 28 chapters, okay? This book's only 12, so it won't be nearly as long, but I'm excited about it. Uh, the theme we wanted to go with, with with the book is walking in the light in the middle of the night. That's what it feels like a lot in this world, doesn't it? We, we face this conflict, right? The Bible says if we believe in Jesus, that our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Philippians 3 says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our, that's our home, New Jerusalem, heaven. And yet we walk this world where... Peter says we're aliens. First Peter 2 says, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. I'm a citizen of heaven, but I walk this earth where temptations constantly barrage me, trials constantly barrage me. How do I walk in the light in the middle of the night? And this week, I want to start with this foundation for, for this book and this first message in chapter 1. Because God is my Father, I will trust He is for me, even in the dark. I chose the word for on purpose. I was going to put with, but I don't think that says it enough, just to believe that God is with me. It's not just that. If I believe in Jesus, it's not just that He's with me. He is for me. He's on my side. And I want to put out there this morning that we have got to believe that if we're going to have the power to walk in the light in the middle of the night. Because what we believe will affect the way we live. If we don't believe that, it's going to be real hard to keep walking in the light. If we do, it's going to give us the power we need. Have you ever wrestled with these questions? How do I stay faithful over the long haul when all these trials keep rolling in? All these illnesses, these financial hardships, these broken relationships, this death of loved ones. How do I keep on walking with God in a world that believes, thinks, and acts differently than I do and marginalizes what I believe? They ostracize me and keep me out. How can I be a change agent for God instead of being changed by the world around me? If you've ever wrestled with those questions and those kind of questions, this book is for you. And again, I want to say it comes down to one question. Do I really trust God in Jesus Christ? Do I really believe that he is my father and he is for me even in the dark? On this day and age, I think we need to define father because father has taken on a whole list of different kinds of definitions these days from Homer Simpson, the, the bumbling idiot, <laughs> to the father that bails on his family and leaves them to survive on their own. Uh, we don't have a view of father that's always biblical. The view of God as our father means a number of things. We're going to hit a few here. One, that he loves me with an undying love. God's word says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He loves us. He has compassion for us. He is in complete control. That's what it means when we say God is our father. He is so wise that he knows everything. 
He is so powerful that he can do anything and he keeps every one of his promises. You guys believe those things about God? Those will radically affect the way we walk in this world. In this chapter one, we're gonna meet four young men that will show us when we believe that, how we can continue to walk in the light, even when we're in the dark. So let's open up the book with chapter one, verse one. We're gonna get some background from these two verses. First, we're gonna get the viewpoint from, from man's perspective. There's always two viewpoints on history. One, man acts and makes decisions, and that's true. We're gonna start with that perspective. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Hey, that's man's view, and that's what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, we know from historical documents, was one of the greatest, richest monarchs to ever walk this earth. He did attack Jerusalem. First, in about 605 B.C., he took Daniel and some of his friends with him back to Babylon. Then he came back in 597 B.C., then he had finished the job in 586 B.C. And you can bet that Nebuchadnezzar thought, like my friend used to say in Ohio, that he was all that and a bag of chips. We know that from later on in the book when Nebuchadnezzar looks out at his kingdom and says, look at this kingdom I have built. And he begins to brag in pride about the power that he has. That is man's perspective. Verse 2 gives us the other more complete side of the story. Some have said that history is his story, God's story. Look what verse 2 says. It says, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. That's huge. Daniel and his friends knew that a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar came, Isaiah had predicted that because of your sin, Israel, Babylon will attack you and I will give you into their hands because you have not walked with me. They knew this was God's discipline. They had gone as far, we know from the word of God, as to sacrifice some of their own children in the fire to a false god named Molech. God was not pleased with the way they ignored the poor. He was not pleased with the way they worshiped idols instead of him. And this was his discipline. This type of darkness is important to talk about because if we believe the Bible, Hebrews 12 says that God still disciplines his children today. Not for our harm. It says he disciplines us as a loving father for our good that we would learn and harvest peace and righteousness in our lives. There are churches out there that will not preach this, that will not preach that God disciplines his children as a loving father because it's not easy to take. And so when we walk into that season of darkness in our lives, if he's disciplining us for sin, consequences are coming down. We got to believe, A, that he loves us and that he's in this process of disciplining me because that's going to say, hey, I'm going to stay with him. I'm going to continue to walk with him because he's my father. If we look at it and say, well, God doesn't do that, or he does and he doesn't love me, what's the tendency going to be? Why keep walking with him? He's A, either allowed this and can't stop it, or B, he stopped loving me. And, And there's this tendency to walk away when we're in that period of discipline in our lives. 
But if we believe he disciplines us and loves us, we'll, we'll follow in the footsteps of these guys. They knew that way back in Deuteronomy, Moses had written, hey, Israel, I love you. If you obey me, there's going to be blessings. And he lists out all these blessings. But he was so specific. He also said, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands, all these curses will come on you. Listen to how specific this was centuries earlier. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land. Then the Lord will scatter you among all nations from one end of the earth to the other. Daniel and his friends knew this was God's hand. The other option is horrifying. Somehow God dropped the ball and let this happen. No, God's in control, and they knew that there were also prophecies that this would only last 70 years. As Jeremiah had said, when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation for their guilt. You see, if God is in control bringing me into this situation, he's also in control to bring me out. These men had that kind of faith. They believed like Ben Franklin. At the time of the forming of our Constitution, they were having difficulty, and he called for a man of prayer to come in and pray for the group of our leaders. He said this, he said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. Benjamin Franklin knew that, Daniel and his friends knew that, and it enabled them to stay strong. Let's go on to verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now I want to stop here. This was a common tactic used by kings at that time. He knew he couldn't use only his resources or he's going to run out of power. So we've got to take men from their, their city because, one, their people are going to listen to him. Two, it doesn't take up my power. And I'm going to train them. So he takes the, the cream of the crop and he begins to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, I want to stop here for a second. This is a faith crisis for these men, okay? It's easy to be faithful when you're at home in Jerusalem, when you see the temple and you see God's people worshiping and you hear God's word. They're now 900 miles away from home. Now, how many of you guys know that that's when the trials often hit? You know, it's easy at church. It's easy right now to, to focus on God's word and Hopefully, you know, our minds are, are thinking thoughts that please God. But what about when you're alone at your computer? It's easy at home. What about when you're on that business trip? I read a story this week. Thomas Kincaid uh, openly shared about his own life. He was the painter of light. Many of you have probably some of his beautiful pictures hanging in your, your house. He, he told a story about his own struggles with alcohol. In his life. And he said, as long as he was at home, he was okay. But when he would get on the road, he would begin to imbibe and get drunk. 
The temptation hit him when he was away from home. In fact, it was a combination of alcohol and drugs that killed him. I don't look down on Thomas Kincaid. We all know that's the case. When, when we're away from, from church, from our family, from those who love us and keep us accountable, we're most susceptible. It's easy in a Bible study. What about when you're away for a weekend with your friends? These are when the, the real uh, tests of our faith come. I want to go on and look at what Nebuchadnezzar continues to do. He assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. I want to focus here on the name change. Because what's going on here is their very identity in God. The real God is being undermined and attacked. Because if you look at the meaning of their names, Daniel's name means God is my judge. The name they gave him, Belteshazzar, means Bel protects his life. They change his name from God, the real God, Yahweh is my judge, to Bel protects his life. Bel was one of the Babylonian gods. They're, they're assaulting his identity. Hananiah's name meant the Lord shows grace. His new name, Shadrach, meant command of Aku. Aku is the moon god. It was worshipped by Babylon. Mishael, who is like God, was changed to Meshach, which means who is as Aku is. And Azariah, which meant the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. If you're a Star Wars fan, some people called him Naboo. They're, they're assaulting their identity, right? And we may not have it so overtly in that our names are changed by our world, but don't we see that as we walk and listen and, and take in what's going on in this world? We see an assault on no, you don't really find your identity in Christ. No, you need to find your identity in that number on the scale. Or you need to find your identity in those measurements. Or you need to find your identity in that job or that wealth or those clothes. And constantly as children of God, our identity is undermined. Where do we find our value? Is it in Christ or is it in these other things? They brainwashed them. They went through this three-year process to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Now, we know that Babylon was great in math. They were great in building cities. They also dealt with a lot of magic and sorcery, astrology, things that God had condemned. And they, they were forced to go through these three years of learning. Their beliefs were attacked. They were taken away from what they did believe, and they were replaced with, with other beliefs. And one man that I read about this challenged me. He said, we need to be aware of this process as we walk through this world today. A lot of times we look at surface level things, and, and things we should be aware of. Is there profanity? Is there nudity? And, and those things are obvious. We need to be aware. If we're watching things that are laced with those things, it should bring a check in our spirit. But a lot of times we leave it on that surface level. And we don't ask deeper questions like, 
What is the thought process involved in this thing that I'm digesting right now? Be it a, a movie or a book or a magazine. We need to go to the thought processes like this. Does the end always justify the means? Or are there some principles that I must always live by? What's the thought process and what I'm taking in right now? Is the easy road always best? Or does the right thing sometimes mean sacrifice? What's the thought process and what I'm taking in? Is satisfaction found in material things? Or is there something more? Is God needed for life? Or can I do this on my own? Is life random or is there a God who really orchestrates all things? Are all beliefs equally valid or is there such a thing as absolute truth? Go beyond the surface symptoms to what is the thought pattern in what I'm taking in. And I believe if we look at guys like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego and Paul, they didn't hide themselves in a room. They went through this three years. They, they took the learning. Paul often quoted Greek poets in his day. But the words of a Scottish preacher named Robert Murray Machane come to mind when we think about how we handle these, these items of the world. He said, beware the attitude of the classics. He was talking about classic literature. True, we ought to know them. But only as chemists handle poison to discover their qualities, not to infect their blood with them thought that's good we need to be aware don't don't hide yourself in a hole but as we navigate through our world beware what am I allowing into my soul be discerning now in light of this they they make a bold decision Daniel sets the tone Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine you, you know it had said that they were to receive food from the king's table the best of the land Although I am told that Babylonians enjoyed horse meat, so best is kind of (laughs) a relative thing. But Daniel looked at the situation, which could have been seen as a relatively small, small thing, right? Hey, we're here in captivity. We got to eat. This is what they offered us. We're not going to starve. Second Kings tells us that Israel's own king who was taken captive ate daily at the king's table, at Nebuchadnezzar's table. So Daniel could have been like, hey, our own king eats it. I'm not a king, he, he's our leader, okay, I can do it. But he looked at it and said, no, this goes against the food laws that God has given us as a nation. And we don't abide by those food laws today, but Daniel looked and said, no, much of this food was offered to idols. Marduk and Bel and Nebo, I can't eat food offered to idols. Much of this food hasn't had the blood drained from it as God has told us. Much of this food is food that we're not even allowed to eat. He could have compromised right here. But what's he do? He says he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. It says it casually right there, but Justin and I wrestled through this and he brought out the idea, what were the potential costs involved for Daniel and his friends here? One, they're in this academy. We don't know how many other people are in there with them, how many other Jews even are with them. They, they, They ran the chance of, facing intense pressure from the rest of their fellow Jews. Why, why are you guys doing this? It's just food, all right? Why, why you got to make a big deal about this, all right? This could bring trouble down on all of us. Just, just fall in line and do what you're told. It could have cost them their lives with this king. We'll, we'll see if, and if later in the book, and if you know the book, you already know, 
This was a king who doesn't deal lightly with disobedience. They, they could have cost their lives. They could have cost their advancement in this school and in the kingdom. There was a great cost involved here. But he asked him, and check this out. You see God's hand as a father who's in control, even in this moment. Read these next words. God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. God hasn't left them alone, even in this season of discipline. He's still there and he's still for them. And he sees their step of faith and he causes this official to show favor. The official was scared though. He told Daniel, hey, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, with good reason, who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the official had appointed over them, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now, before we move to the next verse, I want to look at a couple things here. One is, as we said, this could have been seen as a very small thing. But really, this victory of faith set the, set the tone for victories later on in the book, i.e. the blazing furnace, i.e. the lion's den, that wouldn't have been possible if they had caved at this point. How many of you guys know that when the enemy comes after us, it's not always the big thing? Sometimes he's too smart for that. Sometimes he knows if I come at him with this, it's too obvious. So he comes with something smaller like, like this. It's not always where he comes to us and says, hey, why don't you stop going to church and, and reading your Bible? It may be smaller, more subtle, like keep going to church, but make sure you really believe it's all about you, what you get out of it, your preferences, what other people can do for you rather than what gifts has God given you to serve. It's not always, hey, stop reading your Bible. We're too smart for that, right? But it could be, hey, keep reading your Bible, but make sure that uh, you go into your reading with a belief that uh, it means whatever you want it to mean so you can justify your decisions. It's not always big. Sometimes it's small and subtle. It's not usually, would you deny Jesus if you were scheduled for execution before the Taliban? Okay, a lot of us think of those big moments like that. Sometimes it's, will you remain silent about Jesus in your office because you don't want to ruffle feathers? It's the, the small attack. It's, it's not always, would you empty the bank account at your company if you had access to it? More often it's, hey, would, would you add an hour or two to your time card that you didn't work? It's, would you turn in a receipt for a meal that wasn't a business meal? Would you add 10 miles to that business mileage? Because he knows once he gets us at those smaller moments, we're set up for failure at bigger and bigger moments. It's not always, will you schedule a hot date in a hotel room with that girl who's not your wife? Sometimes it's, would you send a message to that ex-girlfriend on Facebook and begin a conversation where you rekindle the, the glory days when you were together? He starts with the small. And Jesus says, he who is faithful with little will be given much. These men were faithful with what may seem a relatively small test. It set them apart from the other people in the college, maybe even from the other Jews. They were faithful here. 
Harry Ironside, great preacher, said it this way. The only way we can advance in the truth is by maintaining a good conscience. Allow one thing in your life unjudged that you know to be contrary to the word of God or that you fear is not in line with God's will for you and you'll soon find your spiritual eyes become darkened, your spiritual susceptibilities deadened and no real progress made in your soul, but rather a steady decline. But where there is faithfulness and separation from that which is opposed to the mind of God, where his word is allowed to sit in judgment on all your ways, you'll learn that the path of the just is a shining light which shines brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. The word will illumine each step before you as you take the one already pointed out. We've got to ask ourselves, what are those small areas where we're being tested right now? Are we caving or are we standing strong so that when the big test comes, we're prepared to stand firm? Another thing I want to notice here, you notice what he says before test there? Third line, what word does he use? Please. He is so tactful and so respectful in his standing up for his God. That's educational to us. Sometimes we think that in order to stand up for Jesus, we've got to be obnoxious jerks. And this passage, as well as things that we read in the New Testament, say that's clearly not the case. Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. Daniel here says, please. Why do we sometimes feel like we've got to get our feathers so ruffled and, and be so derogatory and harsh to the people we're taking a stand in front of? One guy suggested that sometimes when we take a stand for Jesus, it's really a stand for me because you're attacking what I believe and what I want to do and what I feel is right. He said, hey, if you do it for Jesus, you don't have to get all obnoxious. You're doing it for his glory. He's in control. So just put it out there politely and do what you need to do. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Hugh Halter wrote a book named Flesh that just came out this year. It talked about the, the humanity of Jesus, the friend of sinners side of Jesus. People actually enjoyed hanging out with him. And he says, we've got to grapple with that side of Jesus because Jesus must have had a very likable side to him to be called a friend of sinners. And he said, a lot of times we don't like to think about that because when we think about that, then we look at the fact that most of the people in my neighborhood don't like me or think I'm weird. Then we look at Jesus' life and say, well, they liked him. They don't like me. Why? As long as we just focus on ignoring that side, we, we can blame their dislike of us on the fact that I'm walking with God. Sometimes that may be the case. Sometimes it may be that we're just obnoxious. And we're not walking in his footsteps of being gentle and respectful and a, and a friend of sinners. Romans says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Not saying to compromise, just as you stand up, do it humbly with respect for God's glory, not, not our own. Uh, verses 15 through 20, let's check out the results of their faithfulness. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. 
So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. God blessed their faithfulness. This has nothing to do with, okay, we should all be on a vegetarian diet, okay? This, some people have taken this passage and said, see, God blessed them. There's nothing wrong with a vegetarian diet, but he said in Genesis 9 to Noah, I give you all these for food. He was talking about the animals, okay? That's not the point here. The point is God blessed their step of faith and he made them look better than the other guys around them. And Nebuchadnezzar cared about that. He wanted guys that were healthy looking, smart, wise, all these things. So go on. To these four young men, the blessing continues. God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I just want to stop at that first line. Who gave them the knowledge and the understanding? God. Right. They studied hard for three years. You can believe that. And whenever we're in an endeavor, working hard, studying hard is important. But we need to acknowledge at the end of the day that, God, you are the, the source of the gifts that I need. Next verse. The king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. They start serving him in these government positions in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them. He found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. We'll see this throughout the book. You see those words magicians and enchanters and you say, did they get involved in that? Did, did they do the, the magic and the sorcery? No, there's no indication of that. If they, if they wouldn't cave on the food, they certainly wouldn't cave on magic and sorcery, which God clearly condemned in Deuteronomy 18. What it does mean is that you'll see throughout the book, when the magicians and enchanters try to use that stuff, they just pray to God. Daniel prays to God. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego pray to God, and he gives them what they need. God blessed them caused them to to rise in the kingdom. And then last but not least, this is the last verse of our chapter. We see a testament of God's faithfulness. You remember we said that because God is my father, I will trust him even in the dark. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. It was around 70 years. He would go through four kings. He would be there the entire time of their captivity and you look at that and say, wow, God really was being faithful to his people. He, he put this man there in a significant position for the whole time they were there. Not only did he bless Daniel and his friends, he sent Daniel and his friends as a blessing and an example to his people of how to continue to walk with God. He also sent another man named Ezekiel. While Daniel was there dealing primarily with the Babylonians, Ezekiel was there encouraging God's people. He was telling them stuff like this in Ezekiel 37. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. They will be my people and I will be their God. It's a message of encouragement. I'm not done with you. I'm in a process with you. I love you. I have not given up on you. I'm there. So as we close, I want to just share a quote that encouraged me and then ask us a couple questions. Has the enemy destroyed the holy city and the holy temple and taken God's people captive? 
Is that how you feel when you look around? Is that what's going on? Fear not, for there is still a godly remnant that worships the true God and serves him. Does the enemy attempt to defile that godly remnant? Have you felt that battle this week where he attempts to defile you? Fear not, for the Lord will work on your behalf and keep you separated to himself. Are godly believers needed in places of authority? Fear not, for the Lord will see to it that they are prepared and appointed. Does the Lord desire to communicate his prophetic truth to his people? Fear not, for he will keep his servants alive and alert until their work is done. Last but not least, are you in a place of responsibility and wondering how long you can hold out? For the same God who called you and equipped you is able to make you continue until you complete the task that he has assigned you. I'd like us to close our eyes here and just think back on what we've covered today. God, there's a, there's a faith question as we walk through the darkness of this world. Do we believe in Jesus that you're our father and that you're for me even in the dark? I pray that anyone in here wrestling with that right now would, would come to a settled answer. Then Jesus, you, you are our father. You say you gave us your son. How would you hold back any good thing from us? You're for us, not against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? All these kind of promises you make. Lord, I pray that you drive home your fatherhood in a special way to each one that needs it. And I pray that you'd also remind us that today this, this promise of your fatherhood comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Lord, we, we turn to Jesus, and I pray that anyone here who hasn't yet made that choice or is wondering what that's about would just call out to you and say, show me, God. Maybe talk to me or someone else here. Because that's where it begins. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to examine our hearts. Uh, Lord, what are the small tests that are in front of us? What are the areas where we're being poked and tempted? Help us to discern those and to overcome, to prepare us for greater victory. What are the ways where we've been indoctrinated by the world and didn't even notice? Maybe there's a thought pattern that's snuck into our lives, that's just contrary to your word. Show us that your ways are higher, your ways are better. And Father, just help us as we, as we deal with a world that needs you to do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, Father, to be bold, but to do it in a way that, that loves them and that we make the most of every opportunity. Help us to be like Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the power of your Holy Spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.